Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Michigan, Michigan Law in Chicago, and I am joined today by my co-host, Rob Hunt, who is uh, joining us from uh, somewhere out in ski country, USA, that he can tell you all about, because he's going to reap the benefits of that big, huge snowstorm that's blowing through. Uh, Our producer, Dan Humiston, is out on the East Coast for a change, so uh, he's everywhere, and uh, uh, very excited you guys could join us for the first show of uh, 2022 of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. It's going to be a slightly new format because those of you who were listening last week know uh, that Jim Marty, who was my original co-host on the show uh, from Longmont, Colorado, said his goodbyes as he retires and heads off into the lovely sunset of uh, somewhere in uh, Nevada. So the best to Jim. I'm sure we'll hear from him from time to time as he makes his way to shows and is always happy to share his thoughts and opinions with us. Uh, for now it's Rob and I, and uh, we will always have Dan by our side. We're very excited and glad everyone's joining us. Rob, how are you? Happy New Year and uh, good to see you, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Super stoked to be Jim Marty, so not too far, uh, you know, from me. So into my drive to Utah from here on in, I could either roll my window down and just yell for him, or uh, stop by and grab a beer with them. So happy New Year to you as, as well, Larry. As everyone knows, we record this show a couple days before it actually airs. So by the time this airs, it'll be Happy New Year to everyone out there. But uh, maybe we should kick it off and talk about, you know, kind of the announcement that happened yesterday with re- respect to fish. You know, obviously not playing New Year's at Madison Square Garden, but they uh, they threw a pretty big surprise curveball our way, huh, Larry? You know, look, it, it's true, and thank you, audience, for being patient with us because, of course, as we sit here talking about it right now, it's all brand new. We have no idea what they're going to actually do, and when you're listening to this, you will have heard it. But it's great news to hear. Unfortunately, right, they had to cancel their New York shows. My son, who had his uh, tickets, is uh, very, very bummed out, and I understand. And sorry about that, Matthew. I hope, uh, you know, things get better and you'll get to see him in April, so all will be good. But They've thrown their fans a bone, and as part of their uh, traditional, well, not traditional, but I guess it has been now since COVID hit, their dinner and a movie theme, uh, they're going to do one on New Year's Eve. And what I love is, instead of going back and finding an old show, they're playing live. They're going to play three sets from some studio that they have, and it's going to be broadcast Friday evening as part of uh, the, the fish station on uh, F- uh, FX, uh, Sirius FX, M- XM, or whatever it's called. And uh, also on uh, Fish, I think it's on NugsNet or one of those uh, sites, but you can find it very easily, I'm sure. And uh, it's going to be great. Uh, You're going to be able to hear them play an entire show of music live as it's happening, which quite frankly, I think is uh, absolutely fantastic. I've never heard of anything like that. It's always been, I mean, unless they were actually playing a show and they were broadcasting it, right? But, you know, otherwise you would typically, well, sorry, we can't be here. We're just going to fill in with a... uh, with a tape show, but this is going to be something else. Have you ever seen anything like this, Rob? No, but I mean, it's, it's right in line with like sort of the, uh, the fish mantra of, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, you think about what they did during COVID earlier with the beacon and with the, um, with uh, the dinner and the movies. I mean, look, when these guys can't play, they play. Right. So uh, it, it, it's amazing to me that they go, okay, you know, we have to shut it down. Omicron's ravaging New York city right now. 
So what do we do? I mean, everyone's bought tickets. We've rescheduled to 420 now. You know, most people are going to be able to, to reschedule their show dates. But for anyone that's like planning on ringing in the new year and was kind of bummed that there's no fish and no couch tour, you know, here, here's the perfect solution that only those guys could pull off so seamlessly where they're going to simulcast it on Sirius, simulcast on YouTube and on, you know, Fish FM, which is, uh, you know, millions of people are going to tune into the show now, which I think is just a really great way to say thank you to the fans. Like, sorry, we weren't expecting this. You weren't expecting it. But but here we go. The show must go on. And uh, I'm stoked. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I do, too. And, um, you know, for a lot of people like my son now who had tickets to the show and were faced with the you know, the real uh, dilemma of what do I do? Do I, you know, keep my tickets to go to the show or do I take this once and who knows when it'll ever happen again to watch Michigan play in the college football uh, playoffs? Well, now he can do both, right? And I I think the game plan is going to be to watch the game with the Fish concert as the background. And, you know, not unlike when uh, people play uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with the color portion of... Uh, the Wizard of Oz, right? And they look for all the matchups to show that they're it's really connected. I'm just wondering uh, how often it'll be that we'll see a uh, a peak play on the field by some one of the teams, you know, corresponding with, you know, a really really hot musical peak, and uh, whether they'll be able to uh, play off that karma with one another and and create something. But either way, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and my hats off to Fish for doing it. I think it's a great gesture and. Uh, you know, God bless them for, for taking the time to play, you know, a whole show. What a great thing. Well, all I know is I'm super fired up about New Year's, really fired up about how, the, you know, this entire year has gone for this show and for this program. So, you know, to Larry and to Jim also, you know, and definitely to Dan Humiston uh, and to all our fans out there. Guys, you know, you've uh, you've gotten us really excited about doing this show. We've watched our numbers and our, our, our listenership go up over the last couple of months to a point now where, you know, Larry and I sort of joke about like, wow, you know, people actually, people are actually tuning in. So, you know, uh, you know, we say it once in a while, but thank you to all our listeners for a great 2021. And we're, we're really, really stoked about what we can do in 2022. So for everyone that's out there, you know, thank you for a great year and for really, you know, making it um, fun for us to get into the studio and do this every week for you guys. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, we're nowhere without our listeners, and I still get a kick out of the fact that anybody's interested in anything I have to say about anything. Of course, that's just conditioning from uh, from my wonderful boys at home who love me dearly, I'm sure. Um, but nevertheless, this has been great. And uh, while I was, you know, very sorry, I think we all were for, you know, to see Jim go and uh, the element that he takes out of the show. Again, you know, this is a guy who was there at the very beginning of time, practically, when uh, marijuana was just finally sticking its head out of the closet and and saying, you know, we can be legal and we can operate in a way where people can smoke and not go to jail. You know, and to lose anybody like that is always a tough blow. But luckily, we have Rob Hunt, who's been with us long enough now that uh, he's as much part of the show as Jim and I. Uh, We've got uh, Dan still calling the shots from behind the scene and keeping us honest. And, you know, thank God, what a great topic, you know. There's always going to be a million dead shows to talk about. You know, I've, I've seen the T-shirt, so I know the number. What is it, 2,000 and something, 500 dead shows or whatever. We've got plenty of time before we uh, get close to running out of topics to talk about there. And even as you'll hear today from some of the music we're going to play uh, from a show that we, we, we found and we really like, uh, there's some really fun stuff there. So actually, really quickly... Uh, we do have a show today. It's from uh, January 3rd, 1970. Uh, so that parks it out at 52 years. And um, it's actually an interesting show because it's played in uh, New York at the Fillmore. 
Uh, and uh, as we'll talk more about later when we get into the show, uh, they happen to be out there because it's the only time in their history when they do a New Year's show somewhere other than the Bay Area. They played in the Boston Tea Party uh, for a couple of nights over New Year's and then go to New York. Uh, the show from the night before, January 2nd, was released as uh, Dave's Picks number 30, and a little bit of a portion of the show that we're going to play for you uh, is filler material on that, but you can go find this online at Archive or wherever, and it's really, really great. So uh, here's the intro uh, for us, uh, the, the, the first little bit of music that we're going to share from February, excuse me, from January 3rd, 1970 at the Fillmore East. Lady come to me, she lays on me this rug. We let the fire run round and round, it tremble and explode. Let the smoking crater of my mind, I like to blow away. Well, the heat come round and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day. Coming, coming, coming home, coming around. Lots of good stuff to talk about there, Rob. I gotta say, like, I, I love the early '70s, like uh, other ones, because in my mind, Neil Neil's still there, like Neil Cassidy's still there. So, like, when you actually have a song that's written about you, I mean, it's bad enough the guy had a book written about him in, uh, on the road, but the fact that he also, you know, uh, you know, has a you know the, the years with Keezy, and then has a song written about him by the Grateful Dead, uh, it, it, like that, that's true psychedelia, I think, as far as uh, the early '70s. Like, you know, everyone gives Dark Star all the praise. But the other one during that period was just straight fire. I agree. It's always wonderful, and it was always a pleasure to hear it, you know, no matter when. Um, but back there, yeah, I mean, you, know, you hear their voices so young and so, you know, strong and really belting out the lyrics and playing it. And it's funny because here they are in 1970 belting out the lyrics. And, you know, Bob's lyric is what? That the heat came by and busted me for smiling on it. That just happened the, the year before. It was like brand new. It's one of my favorite lines yeah, absolutely one of my favorite lines of the Grateful Dead play of just, you know, sort of summing up, you know, just keeping me down for who I am. Yep. No, I love that. I love that line. I love how it got worked into that tune. And, you know, I mean, that that had just happened. And here, you know, here they are within a year of that. It's in the song. It's being played. And it's wonderful. You know, it, it's just great to hear that. And we'll, we'll be circling back around to that show in a few minutes because there's going to be a lot of good stuff to talk about that. But... Um, just you're, you're referring to the uh, the bus at seven ten Ashbury, though, right? Yes. Well, not the 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 one where uh, the story where um, he was up in the attic and he threw a water balloon down and hit a cop, and then he came downstairs and the cops were all trying to figure out who the hell had done it, and he sits down on the curb with a goofy grin on his face. So they came up and decided he threw the balloon and they arrested him for public disorder or whatever the charge was, you know. And his telling of it is he got busted. He was sitting around, you know, came by and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day. So I, I've, if I ever get a chance to interview him, I, that's guilty or innocent, I want to know. It's, it's such a great story, isn't it? It really is. And, and that's the beauty of Bob Weir. That could only be Bob Weir. That would never be Jerry. That wouldn't be Pigpen. Phil wouldn't be doing that kind of nonsense. That's Bob Weir. That's what he did. And, you know, it inspired wonderful moments in Grateful Dead songs. Yeah, and I love the way that song evolved over the years. And I love the way it started dropping in the mass of Phil Bombs. I love the uh, in the late '80s all the distortion going into the second verse, 
where uh, you know um, Dan Healy would just mix it up. Where you know, it, if you were high in that audience, it was um, it, it was sometimes frightening how distorted it got. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. They would definitely have some fun with that. And uh, yeah, you're right. It, it could really uh, make, I suppose, or break your evening under the circumstances. But typically, it, it was all for the good. And um, you know, it was just that's just well, we'll talk, right? It's just such a great tune that you know here it is, 40, 50 years later, and you could still you know, hear them play it, you know, at least up till the very end, you know, with pretty much the same vibrancy and the same, you know, Bobby always jumping right into it and loving it. And Phil, as you say, with those wonderful bass bombs, what a great tune. Yep. I think, I think that and the wheel were consistently always my favorite songs coming out of space. I would agree. I would agree. Because yeah, I mean, you know, without cryptical and it would, when they just, you know, mostly play just the other one for our generation, somewhere in the middle of space, you would start hearing it, right? You know, they, they threw out just one or two little notes, but those of us who knew what we were looking for heard it. And then you just, okay, it's going to be the other one. You know, go take a piss. You got 10 minutes. Let's go. Right. And then boom, we, all of a sudden, right on target, they, like you say, just roll into it like that. And boom. Yeah, get, right. That was the key. Get back before the bomb. And off they'd go. What a, you know, what a great song. What a great way to just launch out in the second set or wherever it was when you would hear it but um it's wonderful just quickly some marijuana stuff because why not we are the the deadhead cannabis show so we never want to drop that side of things and um you know there are a few interesting things going on in this uh industry right now as uh, as is typically the case we've got a few interesting stories to talk about thank you as always to mj biz daily uh for being such a wonderful provider of news content and uh I would highly encourage people to go to their website and read up on what's going on in the world of marijuana. Um, so the first thing, Rob, that we got going on is that, uh, as you know, banks uh, still say no to marijuana. can't write checks yet. You can't use credit cards. Uh, but one of the workarounds uh, apparently had been cashless ATMs. But now it looks like Visa is getting ready to pull the plug on that and uh is warning um it's it, it's people out there who are who are running their atms that they need to be very very careful about uh the way those atms are used and to ensure that they're not being used in a cashless way that violates the terms of service sounds like maybe the federal government's putting a little bit of a squeeze on visa there i don't think so i mean i, I think you know visa and the other uh, credit card companies for a long time their biggest gripe is the fact that from where a transaction happens to where it actually eventually clears, might get pinged through 15 different states. And if any of those states happen to be states that still have, you know, an abject prohibition to cannabis, then technically they're money laundering through that state. And that's always been the issue. It's, it's been the gateways with um, with the credit card companies. But, I mean, look, at a certain point, it's ridiculous. You know, if these guys are savvy enough, you know, the credit card companies, they should figure out how to say, okay, if I've got a transaction, let's make sure the pings only happen, you know, on contiguous states. You can get across the country at this point. I mean, there's maybe one or two parts of the Midwest that's so much like tricky, but you know, there's really no reason you have to ping through Kansas or ping through Nebraska. So the whole thing to me is at, at this point nonsense. It made sense when there's only like eight or nine states that were legal, but now that there's you know 38 states that are legal for medicinal, and you know half the country is legal for adult. I mean, look, look, I'm in Utah, man, Utah, and I'm seeing billboards right now for medicinal cannabis delivery services. As I drive to the mountain today. Like when I lived here when I was in like, you know, 1990 and I was slinging bags out of my dorm room, like you, you went to the, the, the jail sentences were insane for cannabis. And now I'm looking at billboards saying you can buy. And this is one of the most conservative states in the union. So Visa can't figure this out or MasterCard and Discover can't figure this out. 
I mean, look, guys, it's it's long past time. Get your shit together and figure out how we're actually going to be able to to you know at least have a safe transaction across the counter that's that doesn't involve cash. And if your ATM systems were the workaround before, stop trying to shut it down. It, it, it's it, like you're you're sticking your finger in a dike. It's ridiculous. Well, well said, and you know, and and with good attitude, I like that. It's uh, you're right. It, it is a very frustrating issue, and you know, you and I both, I'm sure, have so many clients out there. Uh, for whom this is really such a problem on on both ends, guys who who, who run uh, ATM machines and a lot of these dispensaries, you know, for whom this is a huge, huge, huge uh, savior to having to collect all of this cash and deal with all of that and, you know, technically being the rules, right? They're not running it through the Fed. It's a direct credit debit type of relationship, uh, which for a long time I think has given people kind of the comfort that, you know, that's good cover and, and we should really be okay here. Um, but yeah, I do understand the money laundering problems that a, you know, a company like Visa runs into and that sucks. But I, you know, much prefer to see them concentrating their energy on how they're going to find a way to be able to do it in those 38 states and, you know, tell the other states, look, it's not going to involve you. Uh, if and when you ever come on board and you want the service in your state, let us know and we'll flip the switch or whatever we have to do and, and bring you guys online as well. Um, and that may be easier said than done, I recognize. But nevertheless, I think that it's, uh, you know, everybody says, well, we, we need medical marijuana, we need adult use. And one of the reasons that's consistently cited is the safety factor. We're taking it off the street, right? We're taking it indoors. We're making it safe. It's a safe transaction. But it's not a safe transaction when you have to walk to the dispensary with $500 in your pocket. And it's not a safe transaction, right? When when you don't have an ability to just make a payment that allows nobody to have to hold on to all the cash. And, and so at the end of the night, the poor guy who runs the dispensary doesn't have to come outside with three people in three different duffel bags and hope that he's not the one that gets followed by whoever's sitting outside and thinks they may want to do it. And I don't mean to overblow this. We don't hear that much about it, but it does happen from time to time. And why not? There's a lot of cash lying around. And, and to consistently sit there and say, we're not going to alleviate that problem strictly because we have to continue the charade that marijuana is a Schedule One controlled substance and therefore ineligible for any of these types of services seems kind of stupid by now. Yeah, look, and I'll give you an anecdote on that. You know, I ran a panel last week at the, um, at the NCIA uh, show in San Francisco, and my panel was on you know, kind of the California market, and I had some of the bigger uh, CEOs of the industry sitting on my stage. And so I did my interview with each one of them prior to going on stage and said, you know, is there anything you specifically you want to talk about? And one of them, you know, runs a multi uh, dispensary operation in California where the principal places of business, you know, was Oakland and he owns the bloom dispensaries. And I said, you know, Oakland, that's a, it's a great market. It's a terrific cannabis market. And his answer to me is, yeah, when we're not getting robbed, it is, you know, it's like, and I was like, seriously, is it that prevalent? He's like, yeah, we've been robbed like three or four times. And I said, I, th- I knew last year, like during the riots, you know, you were having some issues. He's like, no, man, it's been happening all the time. And the, the reason it's happening all the time, duh, is because there's cash there. I mean, it's the old adage, like, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is, right? Why, why do you knock over dispensaries? Because they're sitting on piles of cash, right? If, if, if there was nothing in there and, and you want to be a drugstore cowboy and go after the weed, okay, I get it. You know, like, you know, you can probably try to get behind the, uh, the locked rooms, but what you're going to get is kind of like going to a 7-Eleven where you can only get whatever's, you know, available that's not in the, uh, in the drop box or, you know, same thing like a pharmacy. But when you're sitting on that much cash, it is a very, very attractive soft target. And it makes no sense to give that, you know, 
There should be nobody in law enforcement that wants that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it seems so logical, you know, and yet here we are, you know, for some states almost 10 years later. It, it's really amazing that after all this time, politics, you know, whatever you want to call it, that, that we haven't been able to get together and, and, and really get this issue resolved. Um, and it's a shame to see, you know, that it, even, even if we take it as, you know, visa being put in a position by the federal government or based on its own concerns as to what the federal government might think, you know, Visa shouldn't have to have those concerns either. You know, they shouldn't have to be the heavy in this situation. Um, you know, they should, they should. I would love to see a market where they don't have to worry about it. You know, sign your ATM deal, go do your ATM. If you want to do cashless for uh, marijuana uh, dispensaries, knock yourself out. You know, as long as you can submit us the proper paperwork at the end of the day, why not? Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is from an AML KYC perspective, which is, you know, anti money laundering, know your customer. Uh, Visa shouldn't be the one the one has to worry about that. It should be the dispensary itself, and they're already taking the risk by making sure they're checking IDs and making sure they're you know checking medical cards they need to. At that point, you know the customer for Visa has already done the AML KYC work. So I, mean, I don't want to belabor this point, but you know at a certain point, this whole thing is ridiculous, and and I think we're long past ridiculous now. I do too. So uh, we agree on that. We'll see what happens, and uh, you know hope that people come to some common sense and. And let us move on forward in a more civilized manner. The next story that I saw is these guys, uh, this guy who's writing and saying that based on what he's seen, that in states that limit marijuana licenses, the number of marijuana licenses issued, so that's pretty much just about every state except for California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Oklahoma, Right. He said, otherwise, uh, it benefits only the multi-state operators who operate in those states. Now, it's fascinating he says that because I've always thought that Illinois was such a fascinating uh, example of the way this market works. You know, I think that pretty much universally people were not impressed with Illinois' medical market, the way the program was run, um, and the fact that a lot of people barely survived and many didn't survive. Um, But yet, a number of these guys who, who got licenses in Illinois just to be medical operators in this same market, you know, either by, you know, foresight or, you know, by necessity or, you know, the ability to recognize what they could do. Uh, they've set themselves up as large, some of the largest MSOs uh, in the country right now, right? we got Cresco and GTI and, well, Cureleaf that bought out, bought out grassroots and uh, Pharmacon while it was still here before that was purchased. And, Verano, of course, and Revolution and all of them, you know, there, there's so many of them here in Illinois and, and they're so successful here. So to me, you know, already I, I look at that and I see uh, that, yeah, I, you know, that seems to be evidence now, um, you know, I, I guess in the long run, you know, on, on a bigger picture, uh, it, it, a lot of it plays in more to price control, right? So that in Illinois, where there's a limited market, the price is very, very high. So it drives many customers in Illinois back to the black market for which there's plenty of marijuana because as we've talked about, and this guy mentions again, such a large percentage of California's annual crop is sold outside of California. And, you know, but if you have a state, even like uh, Oklahoma, right, where anybody who wants in can get in, then the market takes care of itself on the pricing end. And, you know, people have to compete with real competition. And instead of paying $60 for an eighth of medical in Illinois, 
you know, you can pick it up for significantly less than that in Oklahoma and in other places, $20, $25, maybe for an eighth. I can certainly understand and see why, you know, at that point, the big guys get favored because you can't be a small operator. There's, you know, there's not enough of a margin there to be able to keep yourself alive, you know, when you're forced to try and, and do business at a level that's hard to sustain at. But, you know, maybe that's all part of a grand strategy, which is why those guys are now billionaires and I'm still sitting here practicing law. Sure. But I mean, let's run that down a little bit further. I mean, if you're asking, you know, would I rather be um, in a closed market that's going to expand or in a very expansive market that's going to contract it to be a good operator in California, you've got to be good. You've got to be good at your craft. You've got to make great concentrate. You got to grow great canvas. You have to have great genetics. Same thing is true of Washington, Oregon, Colorado. You know, at a certain point in time, uh, Illinois is going to open up. The big question is whether or not the states that are, you know eventually are going to open up, whether or not those companies will be so powerful at that point that it doesn't matter anymore, right? But in, in, you know, in theory, if you're a really good operator that can actually win in California, then if you uh, if you ask a guy like you know John DeFriel from you know um, who, who does Raw Garden, or you ask the guys from Stizzy, you ask the guys from Jungle Boys, you know, as they think about their brands and they think about moving into these other states, ultimately they think they can compete on any playing field. You know, it doesn't matter where it is, doesn't matter who they're going against. They think they're probably a more important brand long term. And right now this is fleeting because the second they enter Illinois and they can't, like they're able to enter Illinois, they should be able to crush the guys already there based on quality and based on like what they've had to do to be a winner in a really, really competitive uh, open market. So, you know, does it truly inure to the benefit of the big guys in the long term? I would venture to guess based on everything we've seen, and I'm not going to take anything away from TrueLeaf, Cresco, GTI, um, CureLeaf, you know, those companies will be around for the long term. There's they're too well capitalized at this point. They're too big. But do I think they'll be the biggest in five years? I mean, like, look back five years and, you know, nobody that was huge then is huge now. And go back five years before that, same thing. I would expect that, you know, those guys that I just mentioned will probably still be top 20 players. But I would think that some of the biggest um, biggest companies in the really, really competitive free market states will ultimately be able to compete in these other states as they start to expand. So, you know, I, I agree with the, the sentiment in the story that you're referencing, that right now it inures to the benefit of the MSO. But I think long term, the free market capitalist society that exists in you know, other states where they've had to you know, duke it out in the trenches and that you've got to be good to succeed. I think those guys ultimately are the ones that are going to build the best brands. Well, you're right. And, and actually, and this author, and if I'm going to keep referring to him, I should give him a name, Van McConnen, uh, who wrote this uh, for MJ Biz Daily. Um, he points out that, uh, you know, people have to realize that getting and maintaining a license is a separate skill from successfully running a cannabis business, which is exactly what you were just saying. Um, you know, and that many of these people have only figured out the first part of it, which is how to obtain a license. You know, they haven't figured out the second part of it, which is how to deliver high quality product, you know, at scale sufficient enough to make a living at it. You know, you're absolutely right. Nothing will ever be able to compete with guys who really, really know what they're doing and can really run a good business and can run it in a way to, to make it affordable. Yeah. So I think time will tell on that one. I'd, lo I'd love to put a pin in this one and come back to it in a year, a year and a half, two years. I'd love to see what happens after, you know, New Jersey opens up their, uh, their licenses, you know, now that they've awarded new ones. I'll see what happens in Massachusetts now that they're still expanding and see you know, how some of those guys are doing, or even when New York actually goes adult use under uh, Hochul. We're, we're going to see some big, big changes in some of these very, very confined states as they expand. And I'm really curious to see whether or not the guys that you know think they can win because they're better capitalized. And I'll give you a, a great um, comp here, which is that in Canada, 
you know, the Canadian, like, you know, uh, LPs were the dominant players for so long. And all those guys now are losing a market share just really, really quickly to the craft boutique guys that are putting out the best product. And they've got two choices. Either they can continue to lose market share or they can buy them. And a lot of these smaller operators are happy to get bought for, you know, massive, massive gains in, in order to uh, to stave off the inevitable, which is that quality will always win. Well, that's very true. And, and that's actually a great segue to this final article that uh, that caught our interest, which is just a very quick recap of uh, how the marijuana mergers and acquisitions markets absolutely sizzled in 2021 and is poised for a hot 2022. And I know you're you're very much right in the business, uh, right in the center of that uh, of that business in that market. Um, you know, what's your uh, as we sit here on you know the the beginning of a new year, looking back, what's your feelings on it? And you know, do you see it possible for this industry to sustain at that level going forward? Yeah, look, I mean, I came into 2021. I think I said this right in the beginning of the year on the show that you know I, I looked at this year as gonna be the year of the M and A. You know, it's gonna be the the, the M and A. When, when I categorize what every year is and I say this year is about planting flags or this year is about building brands or this year, 2021 was about M&A. Uh, I think 2022 is going to be even bigger simply because the deal sizes are getting larger uh, and the acquisitions that are happening are, are happening on a pretty big scale. But if you look at the article that you're referencing on this one, which again was you know citing um, a lot of the data that was being put out by our friends at Viridian, you know, some of these some of these are, are not really you know cannabis transactions like the Jazz Pharmaceuticals purchase of GW Pharma for seven seven point two billion, by far the biggest transaction that happened this year. But I mean that's that's really a pharma deal. It's not a cannabis deal. The the biggest one in, in cannabis in the United States is definitely the True Leaf Harvest merger, and that was you know a two point one billion dollar deal value. But after that, you know some of the other big ones that were in there, uh, a few of them were Canadian. You know, the, uh, the Canopy buying Supreme or uh, Canopy buying Wana. Those were, well, I guess the, the, the second one is U.S. and Canadian. But what they're, what they're not saying kind of in this, um, in this uh, article is how many deals were priced between, let's call it $50 million and $150 million. And there were tons in this last year. And that's where I think it's really interesting. I mean, for a lot of people, you know, if, if you build a small brand and you sell your company for $50 million and you still own, you know, even 25, 30% of that business when you sell it, that's life-changing money. You know, that's even after tax, you're walking away north of $10 million in cash, you know, for building a canvas business and saying, you know, I put four or five years into this thing and here's a payday. That's a real payday. When you get to the $150, $200 million level, now you're talking about guys that, you know, are trying to figure out, you know, where to build which beach house and is it Costa Rica or is it, you know, somewhere in the Bahamas? And, you know, those are, those are real exits. And so, you know, we, everyone talks about all these big MSOs and all these companies where they're still in it and, you know, what they're trying to achieve. But you're forgetting it. There's a lot of guys. I mean, I personally know probably 20 who are, who are done. You know, they've, 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 they've done what they need to do in Canvas. You know, now they're on to something else. They're probably not, you know, in the same space. They might dabble in the space. But these deals are now large enough where, you know, there's a lot of people that are, that are mid-40s, early 50s that are retired. And that's a really nice thing to see out of, uh, out of the Canvas industry. Absolutely. You know, it's... Uh... It is nice because, you know, again, you know, going back to 2013, when we used to see these projections of where this industry could be, you know, it was always felt like maybe it was a little pie in the sky, what they were saying. But the truth is, is that, you know, these numbers exceed anything I think they ever imagined we would be seeing at this point. Yeah, I mean, we saw we saw a $91 million transaction get announced last week, Plant 13 buying a 30, 39,000 square foot cultivator in California. You know, that, that to me is staggering that, you know, with the competition for cultivation in California... For someone to pay $91 million basically for an indoor facility that pumps out some pretty nice weed, but isn't, you know, isn't spectacular. 
uh, you know, there's some there's some real multiples that are still getting paid for businesses just to get the vertical integration in, in certain states. And in California, like to succeed, you know, everyone's realizing that, you know, you can open four or five retailers, but unless you have the cultivation backbone behind it, you know, you're, you're probably missing a, a really good piece of the pie to stock your own shelves and have, you know, 25, 30% uh, sell through of your own product. So, you know, you're still seeing, you're still seeing, um, you know, what are decoupled markets going back and saying vertical integration is still where we want to be because uh, we can control the margins all the way through the supply chain. And, uh, and you're seeing real numbers come out of, you know, if you can get one of those deals, um, that the numbers are still really attractive. That's good news. I mean, that's positive, right? And people who want to know whether there's money to be made in this industry, the answer is yes. You just have to know the right deal and know how to find it and work with the right people. But that's you're right. I mean, it's wonderful to be sitting here and, you know, having these kind of conversations about this industry and just see it getting larger and larger as we go forward and realizing how much more there still is to go. So, But, you know, look, we, we should also talk about the flip side of that as well, which, you know, in some of these states, you know, I, I, I'm an old school guy, right? So I, I feel I feel for my friends up in Humboldt and Mendocino and, and Lake County and Grass Valley area where these guys are still, you know, eking out a living with a, with a small greenhouse and they paid a huge price to go legal. You know, they're, they're, they're paying much more money. They're making much less money than they used to. They paved the way for this industry and they're watching these other guys, you know, build out a, a uh, an indoor facility somewhere down in Southern California, reap the benefits of it while they're still limping along trying to find a way to do this. And they, they don't ever want to sell out to these big guys. You know, like for them, they're growers. They want to be growers. That's all they've ever wanted to do with their lives. And they're perfectly content doing it. And they're pretty damn good at it. And so, you know, to watch the industry kind of bury these guys in the process, I got to say, it's sometimes for me tough that, you know, I've been, I've been part of the problem of like building this monster and feeding this monster. But it's been at the expense of a lot of people that paved the way for the people that, you know, are now here that, you know, it's being dominated by big business instead by the people that actually built the industry to begin that's with. That's a great point. And, 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 you know, and I think that's very important to remember. And, you know, we can all be awed by by these huge deals as they go down and the, the large numbers that exchange hands. Um, but, you know, there tends to be a lot of focus, I think, on, uh, you know, individuals who, uh, you know, wound up losing everything and going to jail and an industry, you know, really built on that. But it, you're right, it's important to just recognize the, you know, I guess what you would call just your everyday marijuana farmer, the people who've just been doing it forever because that's what they do and, uh, you know, make a living off of it. And now all of a sudden, uh, thanks to all these changes in the law, um, it's not so easy for them to make a living anymore. And, you know, while it's easy to say, well, you know, there'll always be another good strain to replace somebody, you know, for those of us that have stumbled around in certain parts of California or Colorado and found the right dispensary at the right time with the right strains, I don't agree with that. You know, that I, I always want that excitement of, you know, finding a new local something to be out there. And, you know, when you get to the point where the only thing that's available to you is, you know, multi-state operator A and multi-state operator B or C, you know, then we're going to we're going to really miss these days. Yeah. I mean, where do you think these great genetics came from to begin with? You know, the, the, the greatest um, breeders have come out of these areas and they've been the people that have dedicated their lives to, uh, you know, either finding land race strains and crossbreeding or, you know, really spending their time trying to figure out what terpene profiles are going to work and how to actually get there. And these guys are, they're the mad scientists in our industry. I mean, I look back 30 years ago and think like, where would we be without like Peabot or where would we be without like headband, you know, and the things that, that were game changers at the time, like the original OG Cushes and like, you know, how that, completely changed um everything else that came afterwards you know the the original um diesels 
you know, those guys that, that were doing this stuff uh, and, and putting their liberty on the line and then figuring out and speaking to other guys, you know, where there was basically a, a coconut telegraph of, uh, of, you know, really, really don't say a word about this unless you, you know, either you know or you don't. Those are the guys that, that, that created this. And now all of a sudden there's like all this generic stuff out there being done in these massive commercial warehouses that to me is not that interesting. But at the same time, like that's that's like what's attracting the Wall Street capital because it's scale. It's not it's no longer craft. And I think we really need to start thinking about how do we support the craft growers again? How do we support the uh, the, the people that that are exceptional at what they do? And, and that speaks to my point earlier of once the uh, the market opens up in a lot of these states that right now are closed, I'd like to see those guys come back in and start smashing on some of the bigger people just because their quality is better. I agree. That would be great to see. No doubt about it. You know, and it's uh, something that, that would be wonderful for our industry. Let's turn to music because that's fun too. I like music. Love music, you know. So, And I loved, uh, Rob and I were having a friendly little exchange the other day on uh, Christmas Day with respect to uh, fun music to play at home. And uh, the idea that it's always good to get some of the family members out of the house so you can really crank the volume up if you're going to do it and uh, uh, and really appreciate the day. My little thing that I like to do every year on Christmas is listen to the Who's Tommy in one form or another. And this year I was listening to the live version from the Isle of Wight Festival in, I think, 1970. And boy, you know, when you turn it up to the right level and they start belting out some of those tunes, it's just wonderful. And, of course, uh, I was equally impressed, Rob, with your choice of a, was it a 1994 possum? It was. And the great thing is I've got a six-year-old son who absolutely loves fish and uh, loves specific songs. So, you know, being able to turn my entire house into a, um, a Sonos, like, uh, concert and just cranking out a 94 possum with him, it, nothing more fun. <laughs> that is excellent. Definitely. When the kids buy in with you and they're happy to be a part of it, it's a wonderful thing. Believe me, I've, I've gone through it a few times now, and I love it. It's really, really nice. So, so I'll give you a little music humor for the day, Larry. Yeah. Uh, I just got a, a text from a good buddy of mine that was uh, making fun of playing in the sand during, uh, during the time of coronavirus with a set list that starts off with the mucus never stopped into a friend of the Delta, into it must have been the Rona, to they infected each other, pits of fools, little red booster, testin, China bat sunflower, into I know you're Pfizer. <laughs> God love deadheads, man. They're always out there. They're always being creative. That's a wonderful thing. Saying sneezing, dark PCR. If I if I had the cure to give, it's just one after the other. Pfizer on the mountain, uh, drum space, six feet. <laughs> Unbroken strain, standing on the immune, Stella Chew. Oh, God. It's, it's comedy that someone actually came up with three nights worth of sets um, based on, on coronavirus. Like, hey. Before you start going back to big concerts, you, you might want to think about, you know, whether or not it's appropriate at this point uh, watching Omicron kind of, as I said, you know, ravage a, a lot of the parts of this country right now. Not in terms of you know, hospitalizations, but certainly in terms of, uh, of what appears to be um, infection. So it's a, it's a, I know it's a topic you and I hate talking about in this show because we're here for music and cannabis. But once in a while, the, the, once in a while it does tie in. So I, I fear I'd at least throw it out there. No, it does. There's no question about it. You know, and look, once again, everybody's going to do their own thing, make their own choice. I'm not here to, you know, to tell people what to do. Certainly not. But, you know, if if, if there's any belief that, you know, getting people uh, entirely vaxxed up and people to, you know, use masks when appropriate, if for no other reason, just out of respect for the folks around them, um, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe this would be a lot more under control. Maybe it wouldn't. I, 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 I'm not an expert and certainly not in a position to say better than anybody else, but... 
that just kind of seems like the logical answer to me. And, um, but you know, again, we are where we are and, um, you know, there's always going to be consequences that have to be paid when, you know, certain health standards can't be guaranteed for everybody who might, uh, want to participate. And I, you know, I can't really argue with that. And quite frankly, I give all of these bands credit for, you know, it'd be very easy for them to say, Hey, look, the tickets are sold. If people want to show up, that's their business. It's not our problem, but they don't. And then like fish, not only do they not, and not only do they do the right thing and step forward and say, we're going to, we're going to cancel the show. And, you know, so that way people who are nervous, but don't want to dare miss our show, don't have to worry. And we're still going to play, you know, an entire live show. I mean, that's just a wonderful thing to see when you get that. Um, and it is very inspiring. And I think, you know, and hope that someday down the road, you know, whether we get rid of coronavirus or just learn to live with it or get to a point where we can all go back out and do the things, you know, we want to do again. And, you know, 20 years later, people look back on this period of time and look at all the selflessness and all of the creativity and, you know, the ways that, you know, bands made sure that they stepped in and really did take care of their fans while being conscious of safety, even at their own expense. If, you know, if you had to cancel a four night run that's completely sold out, that doesn't work very well. So, um, you know, hats off to Fish and hats off to all of these bands that have been, uh, you know, at the forefront of saying we love to play with people, but we just love you to live too. So, yeah, I'll leave you before we get back into listening to some more dead. I'll leave you three of my favorites, which is a uh, ISO ISO sore throated wind. And next time you see, do you see me? <laughs> <laughs> my God. I mean, seriously, somebody's sitting around thinking that stuff up and God bless them. Cause that's wonderful. I love that kind of humor. You know, I'm not going to come up with it, but I'm glad that somebody else does. It's funny stuff. No, I, I agree. I mean, look, you got to make light of the situation. I'm just saying, okay, look, you know, we're, we're still dealing with this. We still want to see music. Let's just figure out a way to make ourselves laugh in the process. If we don't, then, you know, then we don't got a whole lot going for us. So we teased this show a little bit earlier, uh, this dead show a little bit earlier in this episode. Uh, this is a show from January 3rd, 1970, uh, which makes it 52 years old. Um, forgive me just for a moment as we're focusing on January 3rd that I shout out very two quick birthday shout outs. Number one to my niece, Lily in Port Washington, 10 years old today. God love her. And, uh, to cool cousin Brent in St. Louis, who's turning, I don't know, 54, 55. And Brent's the guy in St. Louis who knows everybody. And even up in Chicago, he got me a front row center ticket at Alpine in the 1989 run. And then when fish blew through St. Louis in 2010 and played at the Fox theater, he got us box seats to that one, too. So cool cousin Brent always pulls his end of the deal. And uh, so we'll give him a quick birthday shout-out on his birthday as well. But January 3rd typically would not be a time that the Grateful Dead play, right? I mean... No, you're, you're done with the New Year's run. You're, you're going home. You're sleeping for a few days. And unlike Fish, who will alter it to accommodate a weekend, like even this year where they were going to be playing Saturday night as well, so they throw in a show on the... You know, I... Dead never did it in any of the years that I was around. Everything always just fell when it fell. January 1st was it, and then they were done. You know, maybe in the maybe out that way, they they do some mid to late January shows or whenever Chinese New Year's fell, um, you know, and then they, they do a few, obviously, in February and then start an East Coast tour, and you would never see the dead on the other side of the country right after the first of the year. So this run is very unique, and, and a long time ago, once we mentioned on this show, that the um, uh, 1969 New Year's shows into 1970 were actually played in Boston, Massachusetts at a venue called the Boston Tea Party, which has its own legendary status in Boston, I suppose. 
but the dead played two new uh, the 30th and the 31st there uh, of December 69 and, and did an uh, East Coast New Year's show, which was really uh, unique then and, and still unique today because it never happened again. Everything else has always been in the Bay Area to the extent that they didn't do a New Year's show, which they had a few times in the 70s. And, um, you know, then later on, well, certainly now Dead and Company cannot do it. Or Phil can't do it just because of everything that's happening but boy if you lived on the east coast that year and you had a chance to catch the new year's shows in boston and now they're going to come into new york and do a few shows at the phil maurice and like i say the the night before february uh, january 2 is uh, the show that's featured on uh, dave's picks volume 30 and uh well worth listening to but this show had some good stuff and we heard that one part of the other one that's just a wonderful tune i want to get dan uh really quick here, Rob, to play us another selection from this show, and it's kind of unique. For anyone who's interested in, 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 in checking this show out on uh, archive.org, uh, track number 15, uh, and, and this is an early and a late show, so it looks like it's a really, really long show, but it's really two shows. Archive.org does not have the entirety of the uh, the early show on January 3rd, but it does have the entirety of the January 3rd show uh, of the late show. So if you look at track number 19, or excuse me, track number 15, uh, which is I Know You Rider coming out of uh, China, Kenton, that's great in its own right. But as you get to the end of it, uh, and right before it kicks over into the next song, the dead have a little bit of stage banter where they introduce the next song. And just to put it in context and so people maybe understand a little bit, the next song they're going to go into is Mason's Children, which I think in their entire time they maybe only played 15 times a song that was originally supposed to be on uh working man's i believe but didn't make it and uh for one reason or another and then uh after the the last time they played it in 1970 uh i don't think it was played again until phil lesh brought it back with the quintet um in the early 2000s so let's listen to this really fast here for a minute and uh you'll get the little explanation from the dead about the tune and then a little bit of the tune and then we can come back and talk about it some more. So go ahead, Dan. you agree i love that backbeat or whatever the drummers are doing right before the vocals it's just it's wonderful whatever they're doing i love it yeah it's a lot of fun and i love the banter i mean stage banter is something that's so rare especially during uh you know that that period but uh but stage banter that's completely off topic not about like tuning up or trying to make things right or telling people to step back but just completely off topic random like no it was a drive-in movie no it was a drive-in yes <laughs> It's just really fun stuff. It is. And, and you know, and I love the idea that there's this, you know, a story behind Mason's children, even if that's the story that they come up with at the moment. 
Um, I seem to recall reading somewhere that for a while uh, it had been suggested that it would uh, was had a little was a little more demonic in intention or something like that to tie into the Masons and uh, people coming back from the dead or whatever the case may be. And then they tell this story and kind of shut that down, uh, but still only play the song a few more times and then just buried it forever thereafter. And uh, it's a real shame to me. I mean, I think it's a it's a great song. It's it. it, it you know, it's got a nice little beat to it. It's, it's silly, you know, almost in a fish kind of way. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's too bad that, uh, it's, it's a song I would have loved to have seen the Grateful Dead play. And I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, you know, all different combinations of, uh, Dead and Company or, uh, Phil and his friends and, you know, whoever have brought it back so that we've, we've actually had a chance to hear it played a few times. Yeah. As I said, Mason's Children and Viola Lee were the two things that I was most excited to hear brought back. So it's, Always a pleasure to hear him. Yeah, and that, you know, just a great night, and they're, you know, just really firing on all cylinders. And, um, you know, it's great that they play that tune. It's great that they take the time to talk about it. And But, but yeah, but the playing is just so tight on him. That, that back percussion that he's doing with the drum where it's almost like a snare drum, but it's underneath the beat instead of leading into it. And uh, um, it, it, it's just excellent. And as you play through the rest of that tune as well, you get to hear a lot out of it. Uh, some of the other clips on this uh, show that are really great, the uh, the entirety of the uh, of the cryptical into the other one and then finally back into cryptical is awesome. We're going to hear part of that towards the end. Um, the Black Peter is absolutely uh, outstanding. And, you know, we've been focusing on that one a lot as a song that, you know, was one of those ones that, you know, you'd see Jerry getting ready to come out of space and you have your fingers crossed for morning dew and then it was black peter and i think black peter just got a bad rep for that at least in our generation and you know back then when it's it's still again such a brand new song and and you know jerry's vocals on it are so strong and um really really fantastic to hear and uh you know it's, it's totally changed my views on uh, on that song disappointed in myself that i didn't appreciate it more you know, when Jerry was the one playing it instead of, you know, whoever else I'm going to see do it. For sure. For sure. Well, wow, man. Always so much fun, Larry. And I think that, you know, it is New Year's time, celebratory time. I hope everyone out there has uh, got great plans. Hopefully your plans weren't ruined, you know, going into New Year's. But if you're anywhere on the West Coast, I highly suggest go to the mountains, go skiing, go snowboarding, get out there, do something fun this uh, this holiday season now that we've all taking some time with family. Now it's uh, let loose for a little bit and really celebrate into 2022, which I've got to think is going to be a, a better year than the last two. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that we're about to get a really great year coming. From your mouth, man, we would all love to see it. I think it would be great. And uh, to see our industry just keep going stronger than ever uh, would be really nice too. So, you know, if we can all get back to live music the way we all know it and love it, uh, that wouldn't be so bad either. No, I think that'll happen this year as well. I mean, I, I truly think that this will be the uh, the time where everyone says, "Okay, you know, a lot of the a lot of the negativity is behind us. Let's figure out a way to uh, to, to march forward." Uh, I always have that you know kind of feeling going into a new year of just expectations of of hoping that this year will be better than the last. I've yet to have a bad year, so you know I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not complaining, but I've got a high hopes that 2022, from like a health and safety perspective, from a canvas perspective, from a live music perspective, I think there's a lot to look forward to in this coming year. So. You know, to everyone out there, uh, before we sign off and listen to the uh, the cryptical and to the other one, uh, a really, really happy new year to, to everyone out there listening. Thanks again for a terrific 2021, and we're 
super fired up to keep doing it for you guys for this next year. Amen, brother. It's going to be a great time. And uh, so now we'll uh, tab uh, Dan one last time as we head out the door here. And what you're going to get is the uh, end of the uh, almost 10-minute other one jam uh, as it jumps into Cryptical uh, and then uh, go on from there. Again, take, pull it down off of Archive or go look for Dick's, uh, Dave's Picks Volume 30 and listen to as much of it as you can. It's absolutely beautiful music. Happy New Year, everyone. Talk to you next week and enjoy your cannabis responsibility. Escaping through the little fields, I came across an empty space. A tunnel that exploded, there's a bus stop in his place. A bus came by and I got on, that's when it all began. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why isn't the endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.